Alright folks, I'm going to read um, some parts from Professor Michael Hudson's new book, The Destiny of Civilization. I wanted to read the foreword by Wen Tiajun. Okay. <clears throat> Humanity shares a common prospect, barbarism or ecological civilization. The most important factor affecting the global economy is the increasing strain caused by U.S. hegemony. Its diplomacy has shaped the economic and trading rules enforced by the IMF, World Bank, and other international institutions in America's favor after World War II. <coughs> U.S. leadership reached its peak with its Cold War victory over the Soviet Union in 1991, consolidated by increasingly aggressive military diplomacy over the next 20 years. But since 2008, this U.S. diplomacy has become so aggressive that it is now self-destructive, driving other nations out of the U.S. orbit, leading America's international influence to fall increasingly short of its ambition to siphon off the world's income and wealth for itself despite its own weakening economic power. The principal conflict in today's world is between the United States and China. This book by Professor Hudson explains this conflict as a process of international transformation, above all in the sphere of economic systems and policy. He explains why the U.S.-China conflict cannot simply be regarded as market competition between two industrial rivals. It is a broader conflict between different political economic systems not only between capitalism and socialism as such, but between the logic of an industrial economy and that of a financialized, rentier economy, increasingly dependent on foreign subsidy and exploitation as its own domestic economy shrivels. <coughs> the bully still wants the free lunch. Professor Hudson endeavors to revive classical political economy in order to reverse the neoclassical counter-revolution. The essence of 19th century political economy was its conceptual framework of value, price and rent theory. <clears throat> its idea of a free market was one free from economic rent, defined as the excess of market price over intrinsic cost value and hence unearned income. The classical aim was to free markets from landlords, monopolies, and creditors. Yet the reverse has occurred in the West, particularly since the globalization of neoliberal policies in the 1980s. Historically, the way for industrial nations to gain wealth and power was to make their government strong enough to prevent a landlord class from dominating and indeed to suppress the rentier sector as a whole. <clears throat> to promote industrial prosperity, governments provided public services to reduce the costs of living and doing business. Basic services were provided at subsidized prices that would have been replaced by exploitative monopoly prices if key public infrastructure were turned over to private owners. 
Economically, the most important service that all economies need to function smoothly is the provision of money and bank credit. When privatized, it becomes a rent-extracting choke point. That is why 19th century economists developing the logic of industrial capitalism concluded that money and banking needed to be a public utility. <clears throat> Sorry, jeez, my fucking... So as to minimize financial overhead unnecessary for industrial production. Today's anti-classical e economics regards financial charges as income earned productively by providing a service, which is categorized as output and hence part of gross domestic product, GDP. That, sti that statistical method methodology treats financial profits along with other forms of economic rent as additions to GDP, not as an overhead burden. This produces an illusion that the real economy is growing, but what actually is growing is the rentier sector, which does not create real economic value, but merely transforms income from debtors, renters and consumers to creditors, landlords and monopolists. Yo, the stock market's doing great. It just keeps going higher and higher. <laughs> this rentier takeover is achieved by privatizing the public sector to create rent-extracting means for monopoly capital, organized mainly by the financial sector. This book by Professor Hudson is based on the lecture series on finance capitalism that he presented for the Global University for Sustainability. <clears throat> The series is directed towards the Chinese audience because he believes that China's mixed economy with its classical industrial policy has best succeeded in avoiding the neoliberal American disease. These lectures explain why the U.S. and other Western economies have lost their former momentum. A narrow, rentier class has gained control and become the new central planner using its power to drain income from increasingly indebted and high-cost labor and industry. The American disease of deindustrialization has, result <clears throat> has resulted from the costs of industrial production being inflated by the economic rents extracted by this class under the system of financialized monopoly capitalism that now prevails throughout the West. The policy question for China is how it can be it can best maintain its advantage and indeed avoid falling prey to American ideological and diplomatic pressure. Professor Hudson summarizes summarizes his prescription as follows. First, national statistics should distinguish the productive sectors that create real value from the financial rentier sectors that merely transform income from the rest of the economy to themselves. A transfer payment is not production. Second, all successful economies have been mixed economies. Money and credit, land, public services, and natural resources should be controlled by the government so that they can be provided at cost or on a subsidi subsidized basis, thereby lowering the cost of living and doing business in the private sector. <clears throat> I wonder why Tesla is subsidized by the U.S. government. Third, the way to prevent unproductive debt overhead is to tax away economic rent 
so that it will not be financialized and paid out to banks as interest by speculators and buyers of rent-extracting opportunities. A central point of Professor Hudson's analysis is that U.S. diplomacy is an extension of the neoliberal ideology sponsored by its rentier oligarchy. U.S. exceptionalism means that the United States can ignore international laws, dictate the policies of other countries, and demand that they relinquish control of potential rent-yielding assets, such as banking, <coughs> mineral resource extraction rights, and high-technology monopolies, to U.S. multinational corporations and those of U.S. economic satellites. Yeah, Joffrey is a little bitch. For nearly the entire 75 years since World War II, pro-creditor laws have been imposed on all nations within the U.S. diplomatic orbit. This U.S. drive has imposed austerity on global South countries when they have not been able to pay their dollarized debts, sacrificing their domestic, domestic economy and the well-being of their people to pay foreign bondholders. <clears throat> I just want to say, whoever this, uh, this, uh, rentier class is in America that's doing all this, I just hope you guys are ready for the, for the shitstorm that's about to come. Like, like I keep saying, you cannot outrun your own karma. And, my goodness, you! this class of people have definitely created a tidal wave that is going to come and just wipe them out. Just watch. Just watch. You can't cheat energy. All right. <clears throat> what is ironic is that the United States itself is by far the world's largest international debtor. Let me read that again. What is ironic is that the United States of America... The greatest country on this planet itself is by far the world's largest international debtor. I keep saying sin means debt. Sin means debt. The U.S. is by far the world's largest international sinner. <laughs> and all sins have got to be paid. It has turned the dollarized system of international payments into a way to make other countries finance its global military spending by making the foreign reserves of the world's central banks take the form of loans to the U.S. Treasury, holdings of U.S. Treasury securities, U.S. bank deposits, and other dollar-denominated assets. I mean, whoever made up the system, first of all, I don't know how the rest of the world went along with it. Well, I mean, unless they were pointing a gun at you and you didn't have really any other choice, then I get it. But, like, if people signed on to this shit willingly, it's like, man, y'all are fucking retarded. Okay. <clears throat> other dollar-denominated assets. That is the buttress of today's debt-based dollar hegemony. To break out of this dollar trap, China should stand with other independent nations to develop a new system of international payments and formulate new principles of international law for trade and investment relations. These principles require an overall economic and political doctrine along the lines described in this book. 
And look, man, this has got nothing to do with whether you're American or Chinese or white or Asian. It's got nothing, none of that. This is just a handful of people, a class of people, a group of people from certain countries who basically use that country's government as the tax collector. So its citizens suffer just as much. What Whatever your race, color, gender, blah, blah, blah is, they don't give a fuck. They don't give a fuck about you. Whether you are a proud American or whatever and love your country and want to fucking fight for your country and protect it for your, for your rights and freedom, they don't give a fuck. They put sugar in baby formula. They don't give a fuck about you. It's nothing personal. And then on top of that, they will find all kinds of ways to divide the rest of us. So that we can't get united and fight the real fucking idiots who are causing all these problems. Instead, we go around fucking doing all kinds of jack-all dumb shit. Because we're a bunch of dumbass retards. We don't want to face the real enemy who's causing all these problems. These principles require an overall economic and political doctrine along the lines described in this book. What I find strange is that despite the West's economic, political, social, and cultural problems stemming from its neoliberal, anti-classical ideology being obvious for many years, many people in China still look to Western schools and leaders for guidance as if their own native institutions, civilization, and even their own race are inferior. Yeah, this is done by soft power, by exporting culture, Hollywood, movies, make... <laughs> this is just simple, basic, monkey-see-monkey-do. If, if everybody else starts making their own movies with their own people and making, good, making a good movie, a good product, all that will start to change. Hollywood is the ultimate soft power that... <laughs> Just make better shit, man. The defeat of... I mean, it's not that hard nowadays, especially with Hollywood being all woke and shit. It's like, just make better shit. The defeat of a country starts with the defeat of the people's self-confidence in its institutions. Yet, as an American scholar, Professor Hudson, who has studied U.S. finance his entire life and worked on Wall Street for decades, recognizes China's institutional advantages... As long as we have the scientific spirit to continue self-reflection, self-correction, and self-enhancement, there is no reason not to believe that China's social organization and its ideology of common prosperity can lead its society toward a higher form of civilization. Look, I don't care. I'm not picking any sides. I'm just saying, for once, as humans, can there be... (laughs) A moment in our history where we all fucking take our minds back and and then uh, see what's actually happening. Like <clears throat> they got us by the balls with simple middle school psychology, man. It's simple middle school divide and conquer psychology on the playground. That's how they got us. That's how simple it is. 
Okay, the key is to pursue our institutional advantages and abandon the shortcomings of the post-industrial Western rentier economies. Economies. Not follow the Western neoliberal neoliberal path and fall into dependency on the U.S. hegemony and ideology that has ground prosperity to a halt in most Western economies, subjected as they are to debt-ridden austerity. Yeah, America, get ready, man. Fucking these motherfuckers made America broke. They're, America's bankrupt. <laughs> America's bankrupt, man. We have so much debt. Behind today's finance capitalist crisis is thus a profound civilizational crisis. The world is at a crossroad in which all humanity, humanity now shares a common prospect. Barbarism or ecological civilization. Yeah, this is the reason for World War One and Two is basically when the rest of the world wanted to get out of this whole fucking bullshit economic system is when America started two world wars so that the rest of the world c- couldn't get out of the dollar. This is why these two world wars were started and it looks like they're gonna about to start a third one. <laughs> this is like, my goodness, talk about a crazy fucking ex, man. A crazy ex who... <laughs> my goodness. Okay, <clears throat> I'm gonna read the introduction also. Most forecasts of GDP and national income assume that existing trends will continue, with economic product and income growing exponentially at historical rates at infinitum. Yeah, the uh, this is the Joffrey immature male psychology. Just just makes no logical sense. Just completely retarded. But that's all. It's just it it thinks it can continuously keep coming. but economic reality knows only one form of perpetual exponential growth that of debt accruing at compound interest financial claims expand by mathematical principles independent of the economy's ability to pay the real economy's growth tapers off as its circular flow of income between producers and consumers is drained by debt overhead charges this is the phenomenon of debt deflation. The tendency for debts and savings to grow faster than the underlying economy imposes austerity on labor and industry and polarizes the distribution of wealth, real estate, stocks, and bonds, much more than that of income. In due course, financial wealth politicizes itself, aiming to block governments from regulating and taxing creditors, large property owners, and monopolists. Yeah, Peter Schiff, I mean, he's probably a nice guy, but like he keeps he keeps blaming the government. He keeps he's part of the 1%, so obviously he's going to deflect from himself, and he keeps blaming the government. He keeps saying, "Oh, it's the government's fault that blah blah blah." It's like these people, man. The task of today's neoliberal econ- economics is to provide an un- an ideological cover story to rationalize this opposition to public regulation and progressive taxation. The government is Biden, a spineless cuck puppet who will do whatever his lords and masters tell him to. He doesn't give a fuck about the people. Yeah, he might give good speeches when he can read the fucking text, but other than that, he has no free will, bitch. He has no free will. 
The task of today's neoliberal economics is to provide an ideological cover story to rationalize this opposition to public regulation and progressive taxation. What appears at first glance to be a libertarian ideology of minimal government turns out to be a capture of government by increasingly centralized financial interests. The result is an inherently anti-democratic power grab by the 1%. Yeah. It's always been... They even put it on the dollar, man, on the pyramid. Jesus Christ, man. And they say, in God we trust. They got us mentally cucked since fucking Sunday school, man. <laughs> the eternal engine goes choo-choo from fucking Snowpiercer. Neoliberal ideology diverts attention from the economy's polarizing dynamics. <clears throat> Neoliberal orthodoxy aims to deter governments from public regulation, as if the major problem is not the rentier sector's debt and rent overhead, but governments strong enough to prevent predatory rent extraction. Today's national income and GDP statistics depict the finance, ins insurance, and real estate fire sector and extraction of economic rent from land, natural resources, monopolies, and banking as productive, not as overhead to be minimized. Yeah, it's just a word game, syntax. Government intervention is deemed unnecessary by assuming the operation of supposedly natural tendencies for economies to settle automatically at a stable equilibrium. Good movie, 2022 equilibrium is coming with wealth and income becoming more fairly and equally distributed internationally as well as nationally. This fiction is necessary to support the claim that governments should step aside and refrain from interfering with free markets. Free markets means basically for the 1% to go and grab everything they want. That's what free market means. The reality is that neoliberal free markets and free trade concentrate wealth and income in the hands of creditors and other rentiers, polarizing economies domestically and indeed internationally. Yeah, we still give to Caesar what is Caesar. That's still going on, Jesus. <laughs> That's still going on. Wealth addiction as a polarizing dynamic. <clears throat> the most fatal error that any theory can make is to get the direction of change wrong. But that is what today's mainstream e economics does. Its notion of consumer choice assumes dimish diminishing, marginal, diminishing marginal utility based on the trite observation that as consumers are satiated with food, each additional mouthful gives less pleasure, utility. So demand is supposed to fall with increasing supply. A subtle sleight of hand then uses food and other consumables as a proxy for wealth, as if the only purpose of obtaining wealth is to buy consumer goods. Look, man, at the end of the day, it's always a fucking story. If the story makes no sense, they're bullshitting you. The implication is that the richest individuals will become satiated with their wealth and leave more eager and hungry newcomers to strive to earn more and catch up. But Plato, Aristotle, and indeed most classical Greek philosophers, poets, and dramatists recognize that wealth is addictive and that creditor demands threaten to disrupt social balance. In their view... The more money one has, the more its possessor falls prone 
to a money lust for more. Hmm. Do you think that's possible? No ways, man. There's no ways these uh, one percenters could be selfish motherfuckers, right? They're they're obviously like the smartest, most noble people, right? Like Bill Gates. <laughs> like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Money and power are not like a diet of bananas, making one quickly satiated. Let me read that again. Money and power are not like a diet of bananas, making one quickly satiated. Once addicted, one never has enough, and wealth addiction leads to a hubristic use of economic power to gain control of government and and use it to facilitate greed, patronage, power over clients, debtors, and renters. This is the history of classical Greek, Roman, and modern oligarchies in a nutshell. The abstinence theory of interest implies that the richest individuals are not greedy but are patient in foregoing consumption and making or financing a productive sacrifice to make their wealth. Yeah, the whole fucking marshmallow bullshit test. They own all the marshmallow making companies, so they don't have to. <laughs> okay. The recipients of interest are depicted as playing a productive role helping economies grow. But most lending today, and indeed historically, has not been for productive purposes, and most wealth has not been gained by hard work as much as by the rentier privileges that go with one's inherited status and assets. Yeah, just uh, look up the history of gold, especially in Germany during the Nazi times. You'll, you'll see what greed looks like. If non-consumption was the key to wealth, starving people would be the richest. So there you go. Guess where all those people with all that Nazi gold went to? Just just guess. There's a good movie called uh, Inside Man with Denzel Washington and... Um, what's the other guy's name? Well, Denzel Washington. So you look it up. Inside Man. Good movie. <laughs> okay, mainstream theory also ignores the limited range... Eric Bana, that's his name. Mainstream theory also ignores the limited range of choice that confronts most non-affluent people. Consumer spending is depicted as being open to choice, whether to consume now or save up for the future, earning interest, which is seen as a reward for abstaining from consumption. There is no acknowledgement of interest as a form of economic rent obtained by inheritance or privilege nor that the indebted poor need to pay interest or rent as a condition of survival for basic needs. Yeah, basic needs, man. Basic. Government owns all the land. Why is that the case? Your money or your life is the choice that in reality accounts for most consumer spending headed by housing, education, healthcare, and emergencies. Just a second. Marginalism and centrist politics ignore the structural causes of inequality. Looking at small changes occurring in a given economic and political environment, marginalism focuses on income, consumer spending, and investment in the short run, not on the direction in which property and debt relations are moving. Lacking the concepts of wealth addiction, 
predatory lending and the mathematics of compound interest, marginalist econ economic theory does not acknowledge that without public checks and balances, economies will polarize as wealthy elites use their power to impoverish the non-rounder sectors. Yeah, first they'll take their money and then on top of that make sure they can't fight them. Bunch of, bunch of real great men <laughs> and women. Like marginalism, centrist politics only... I mean, Margaret Thatcher, she's a great example, right? She's a great uh, <laughs> role model. Like marginalism, centrist politics only recognizes problems that can be resolved without challenging without challenging the status quo and its vested interest. Centrism assumes that however much the economy is polarizing, life can go on, go on without systemic institutional change. This policy pass this policy passivity ignores the tendency of econ of economies to polarize as imbalances mount up imbalances that are largely financial in character with the fire sector's exponential growth of debt being their primary cause remember debt means sin means debt so the more debt you have the more sin you have the easier to control you bitch <laughs> centrist view and then we'll say, uh, Jesus died on the cross for you. Then people will, will wear a cross around their neck. That's a, that's a symbol for a yoke. Yoke. You, how you yoke two animals together. The cross is a symbol of a yoke. Okay? The cross. <laughs> Jesus is a symbol of the mind. Of the human mind. So that means that these people have found a way to yoke you mentally and on top of that, to make you wear the symbol of that yoke, to let everybody know that this religion has has your mind now, that you are under their <laughs> mind control. And on top of that, you can wear a cross so that you can let everybody know. Okay, centrists view the economy as if automatic stabilizers will return life to normal will return life to normal growth in due course. But nothing marginal can save economies from polarizing as a widening swath of the population becomes more indebted while wealth is monopolized. Yeah, so many fucking sinners, man. Look at all these fucking sinners. <laughs> Assuming that all debts... When the, when, and then it's because they're so many sinners, you need more churches, right? <laughs> you need more churches because there's so many sinners. Just to make sure whatever else money they have, the church gets tax-free. <laughs> My God, man. It's like, kick them, beat them up. While they're down, take everything. Take all their shit. Jesus loves you. <laughs> God loves you. Assuming that all debts can and should be paid, this centrism opposes reforms that would block the financial sector from indebting the economy and then monopolizing it as defaulters forfeit their homes and businesses. Give to Jesus. Give it all to Jesus. Jesus will take it all. No worries. Jesus, give it all to Jesus, and Jesus will bless you doubly, triply, however many times. Whatever it takes for the dummy to get, <laughs> to believe it. 
and when indebted cities and states suffer declining tax revenues and budget deficits as a result of debt deflation and economic polarization, they are told to cut back public spending, borrow or sell off public property and infrastructure rights. The effect is to increase the financial sector's power. All these great cathedrals all over the world. Can you imagine how much money it costs to fucking make these things? Just imagine all those suckers giving up all their money. <laughs> Man. Free trade imperialism and that of U.S.-centered finance capitalism. Fifty years ago, Fifty years ago, in 1969, I started lecturing graduate, eco eco graduate economics. I started lecturing graduate economics students at New York's New School on Theories of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt. From the outset, I found a serious problem. If I taught the mainstream trade theory that appeared in the standard textbooks, it was not realistic. If I taught how trade and investment work in reality, it would be the opposite of what the textbook models taught and still teach. A perhaps apocryphal story about an American evangelist expressed the problem. Taunted about his illiteracy, he replied, what is the sense what is the sense of knowing such a lot if what you know isn't so? Mainstream theory assumes production functions to be subject to diminish, to diminishing returns. Yet the rea yet the reality is increasing returns thanks to the progress of technology in industry, agriculture and commerce. That perception was the essence of the American school of political economy in the 19th century and of Joseph Schumpeter's, Schumpeter's creative destruction by innovative firms employing new technology to cut costs and thus undersell existing producers. It is one of the principles guiding China's economic rise. Without tariff protection, production subsidies and related government support, Many countries will be unable to develop their industry and agriculture and move towards self-sufficiency in essentials by investing to modernize their technology and therefore will remain dependent on trade patterns and credit dominated by the lead nations. If China had followed mainstream orthodoxy, it would have left its industry and agriculture to market forces, meaning the existing productivity gaps. The market would have left it with rising trade dependency and hence dollar dependency on U.S. banks and international organizations. That is the policy that the United States and other industrial creditor nations would like all that is the policy that the United States and other industrial creditor nations would like all countries to follow instead of funding their own industry and agriculture to become self-sufficient. Yeah, nobody wants a self-sufficient motherfucker. The reality is that international productivity and income gaps widen with increasing returns to scale and rising creditor power benefiting the lead nations. The counterpart, 
The counterpart to the widening advantage of these nations is obsolescence for economies not keeping pace with improving with improvements in productivity. Free trade theory is a rationale to justify such widening gaps and the resulting trade and financial dependency as the most efficient development policy. But instead of describing how Britain, the United States, and Germany industrialized and gained world leadership by protecting their industries in the 19th and early 20th centuries, neoliberal free trade ideology hypothesizes a what-if world. The so-called gains from free trade from buying lower-priced goods abroad actually measure the degree of trade dependency resulting from wage and productivity gaps. The drive by the United States to impose debt and trade dependency is the essence of today's new Cold War shaped by active and often violent U.S. diplomacy. Charlie Wilson's famous phrase, what's good for General Motors is good for the country, has been transmuted into what's good for Wall Street is good for America. When merged with evangelistic U.S. foreign policy, what's good for America is good for the world. The logical syllogism is clear. What's good for Wall Street is good for the world. Dealing with financial polarization requires systemic across-the-board reforms. Social systems are different from individuals acting by themselves. Changing a social system requires systemic across-the-board reforms, not merely marginal changes. Creating a post-rontier economy requires debt write-downs, tax reform falling on economic rents, and public infrastructure investment to prevent monopoly rent-seeking. These changes in property relations are necessarily systematic and require complementary monetary and legal reforms to retain stability over time. Such such systemic changes must be coordinated. They cannot be introduced piece by piece at different times. That is what makes real reform revolutionary. Mainstream economics throws up its hand at this point and says that structural problems are exogenous, that is, outside the scope of marginalist models. Garbed in convoluted mathematics to deter the public from seeing their silliness, these models impose a tunnel vision to avoid describing the real world's debt and property dynamics. By not recognizing the polarizing forces at play, these models frustrate recognition of many necessary public policy reforms. Yeah, if you don't even know what the problem is, there you go. They just keep these dummies, keep guessing on what the solution is then. Because they don't even know what the problem is. They don't, they, they don't even know who the real enemy is. A nation's economic path is not predetermined by its subject to active policy decisions. That is why classical economists that is why classical economists call their discipline political economy. The political context is shaped not only by reformers but also by their rontier adversaries because structural reform does not occur without the vested interests fighting back. In the international sphere where the U.S. dollar is used as the major world currency under the Treasury Bill Standard, the United States resists attempts to, by 
trade-dependent countries and dollar debtors to create a less exploitative and polarizing diplomacy, threatening reformers with color revolutions and regime change U.S. policy has been to install dictatorships and client oligarchies praised as part of the free world democracy and rules-based order as long as they support the neoliberal Washington consensus. The whole world has become just clockwork orange, man. They don't even know who the real enemy is. They'll react emotionally to everything they show on the news. It's just the guys by the balls, man. The guys by the balls, or as Trump says, grab her by what? Rejecting the dollar standard and the finance capitalist dynamic behind it requires an alternative economy organized to avoid privatization of economic rent and predatory finance. The starting point must be to recognize the distinction between earned income, wages and profits, and unearned overhead income, economic rent. It also must recognize how finance capitalism has gained power over industrial economies, above all in the United States, from which it seeks to project itself globally. Yeah, it's just... Joffrey, Joffrey showing off, basically. Led by the financialized U.S. economy, today's new Cold War is a fight to impose rentier-based finance capitalism on the entire world. That requires blocking foreign economic reform. Chapter 1 explains industrial capitalism's 19th century aim to free economies from rent-seeking and how this reform program failed to be realized after World War I, leading to finance capitalism instead of socialism. Chapter 2 describes how finance capitalism has inverted the moral philosophy that underpinned classical economics and its concept of free markets, with mainstream economic ideology now defending rentiers instead of seeking to end their economic and political dominance. Chapter 3 traces how this counter-revolution has... Okay. internationalize itself to create a cosmopolitan financial oligarchy whose business plan involves reducing most of the planet to debt and trade dependency. Yeah, make everybody Christian. <laughs> everybody can get yoked. To explain the dynamics at work, I mean, that is literally the Christian mission, is, is to the ends of the world. Till everybody becomes Christian, Jesus is not going to come back. That is, that is what they say. That is their mission. To get everybody to become a debtor, a sinner. Okay. To explain the dynamics at work, Chapter 4 reviews the classical concept of economic rent as unearned income and the result of, pri of privilege. Chapter 5 describes how the post-feudal landlord aristocracies that ruled Europe have metamorphosized metamorphized into today's financial oligarchies whose income and wealth remain based on rent extraction from assets financed by interest-bearing debt yeah the roman catholic church the effect is to transform rent into a flow of interest payments chapter six places these dynamics in their international context 
Free trade opposes government tariffs and actions to support industry and uplift the status and welfare of labor. Chapter 7 describes the most egregious, egregious attempts to block the authority of governments to protect their economies from social and environmental destruction. Reviewing how these destabilizing and polarizing economic dynamics have politicized themselves, Chapter 8 describes how the threat by democratic politics to legislate reforms has been countered by party politics to prevent moves to create economic democracy. Chapter 9 elaborates how the frontier interests have consolidated their control of government despite nominal democratic politics, this having occurred most thoroughly in the United States with its oligarchic two-party duopoly. Yeah, both the left wing and the right wing are owned by the corporations. <laughs> so you can take all that bullshit from all of them and just shove it up your ass. Chapter 10 describes the extent to which U.S. diplomacy has succeeded in making foreign countries keep their central bank savings in the form of loans to the U.S. Treasury, thereby financing America's foreign military spending that remains the major cause of the U.S. balance of payments and domestic government budget deficits. Yeah, the, the U.S. Army is what is putting America in all this debt. How the irony, man. The irony. Chapter 11 examines how U.S. neoliberal advice led the former Soviet Union to deindustrialize and how the aim of neoliberal ideology is to turn public enterprises and utilities into rent-yielding financial vehicles. The world does not have to follow this path. Chapter 12 reviews the classical concepts of value and rent that were intended to guide policymakers in creating a tax and regulatory system to minimize unearned income in the mixed economies toward which industrial capitalism seemed to be evol evolving in the 19th and early 20th centuries. The concluding chapter 13 summarizes why a financialized and privatized economy is incompatible with economic growth and rising prosperity for most of the population. It contrasts the economic program of industrial capitalism and its seeming evolution towards social socialism with the finance capitalism that has emerged and gained momentum since the 1980s to monopolize economic growth in the hands of the top 1% of the population, with the remainder of the top 5% being given more modest opportunities for their role as cheerleaders and enablers. Yeah. Tax the rich AOC. Tax the rich AOC. Only all of these motherfuckers should get Oscars, man. They all deserve an Oscar. Only a radical across-the-board reform can reverse the Western world's polarizing trends and dependency relationships. That is what makes today's new Cold War so critical in determining the future course of world evolution and avoiding a Roman-style economic and demographic collapse. I wonder why he said Roman-style. The Roman holy bullshit church, Catholic church, led by the Papa, Pope, which means Papa. Pope, Papa of bullshit, horseshit, because Jesus H. Christ was a horse. The Bible is about shamans. God is a volcano. <laughs> These motherfuckers just lie. They just lie straight to your face.
And, uh, you know, they do it, they succeed by Sunday school. You grab them when they're young, just like they do with the indigenous children all around the world. You grab them, brainwash them, kill their parents, kill the men, put the men in prison. That's it. Religion. There you go. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Peace.